Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Decouple Podcast, where we explore the science and technologies that can decouple human well-being from its ecological impacts, and the politics that can make decoupling possible. Welcome back to Decouple. Today, I'm joined by Robert Parker. Robert is the ex-president of the Australian Nuclear Association. I met Robert um, on a recent visit of his uh, to Ontario, where I had the pleasure of hosting him for a couple days uh, before his meetings with our nuclear regulator, our minister of energy here in Ontario, and with the OPG team working on small modular reactors. We've got a lot of stuff to talk about. Again, we had a great couple days, learned a lot about Robert, but I'm going to let him do the decouple thing and uh, introduce himself. So Robert, a warm welcome and tell us a bit about uh, who you are, what you're all about. Okay, Chris, it's great to meet up with you again because we did have a lovely time in Canada, in Toronto, and we came to Canada with a bit of a mission and I'll outline just briefly. Uh, Many years ago, I got involved with climate change as an, as, a, as an issue. And in fact, within our local community in 2007, I started a climate change group within our community. As I mentioned to you before, I'm a civil engineer and, and I worked for about 35, 40 years on construction sites. And I was responsible for the profitable running of construction sites. So my background is strongly in ensuring the efficiency of construction, design works, tendering. I guess you could say over that work period, I developed a good feel, particularly for the civil engineering components, excavation, getting your hands dirty, and also trying to make a dollar out of it at the same time. That's always underlined what we did. Um, Personally, well, I'm a grandfather. I live in the Southern Highlands in New South Wales, a beautiful temperate climate area. I've got a, a, a wife, Anne, who's a GP who works in these days. She, well, she used to run a, a local practice in the uh, town of Bower, but now she works out in remote area Aboriginal health in the centre of Australia and also deals with, that, with medical matters there online. So that's a demanding issue for her. Um, as I said, 10 grandchildren, and we have a great time with them. Um, my experience, as I mentioned, as a civil engineer, and I was working in Southeast Asia, I was working in the Middle East, I worked around the world and in Australia, and I became increasingly concerned about the issues of climate change. Um, and I got in touch with uh, James Hansen, in the United States, friend of yours and grandfather climate change science. Back in about 2015, we brought him to Australia uh, with Sydney University and a group called the St. James Ethics Centre. We, we had James speak where we filled Melbourne Town Hall. We had people standing around the walls for his talk. Uh, similarly, in Sydney, we had a great talk and he met a number of our thinkers, including our future Prime Minister, Malcolm Turnbull. Very early on, James influenced me to believe that we should be looking at nuclear energy if we were going to address climate change. Um, through the group that I'd started locally earlier, earlier on, I thought wind and solar would do it. Um, then the engineer brain kicked in and I thought, no, this nuclear stuff is probably the way to go. Small footprint, um, 
and very efficient and not weather dependent. And so I went on and did a master's in nuclear science at the Australian National University. I thought if I was going to advocate for this stuff, I better get my skills base up. And so I lifted the skills base to be able to do that on top of the master's I had in engineering science from civil engineering. So I've always been quite grounded in ensuring that we, we have the facts. My life philosophy has always been a bit of a contrarian. I've got to admit, even as a kid growing up in a remote part of New South Wales, um, I was one of the early kids in our area back when I was about 13 or 14 about the Vietnam War issue. And I, I really got into that as an issue earlier on. I've always pushed the edges of, shall we say, uh, the, the, the way the rest of society might always cast the die, I tend to, tend to push back. And that's what's happened with nuclear. I've seen that we need to be pushing at. And so come forward, this, this contrarian is now looking very strongly at, nu at nuclear energy for our country. But it's not, a, it's not about just being a flash in the pan. I like this term, the constant gardener. We've got to be constant, as you are, Chris, with your advocacy. You've got to tend the field. As you get blossoms, you've got to water them and you've got to keep the shoots growing. And so that constancy and continuity over the long term is what's essential if we're to get um, change. I'm a social democrat. You can probably Your listeners can probably judge by my age that I grew up in the benefits of the post-World War II reconstruction of all of our societies, where, we, where our nations built out our education, our defence forces, they built out our hospitals, our medical systems, and Australia has always had a history of being well grounded in social democracy, despite the conservative, the left and right swings. We are fundamentally mm -hmm. a social democracy. And uh, that then transcends into energy delivery, which we've seen in, in your nation and ours, where uh, Governments initially built out our coal plants and built all that system and the great the grid we've got. And now it's a time for social democracy to take to come into the play again and rebuild our energy systems around nuclear. So that's a bit on the life philosophy. It's a very thorough introduction. Um, and I think you did a great job of, of piecing it all together. Yeah, I, I really, uh, really enjoyed that. I was just I had Michael Schellenberger on recently and we were exploring um, this question of the kind of psychological profile of the people that that get into nuclear advocacy. Um, so so great to hear your origin story um, and some of your qualifications. And I'm I'm really excited for this conversation. We were kind of joking that it's going to be a little bit of a, a smorgasbord. Um, there's so many areas I want to touch on. I'm I'm very excited that you're working so hard to bring nuclear energy to Australia to get rid of the ban. Um, and I think that uh, having your leadership as again a civil engineer. Um, with with construction experiences is so important because you know on decouple we're constantly wrestling with that question of the so-called nuclear secret sauce how to do this right nuclear is not easy um, and I think it takes the careful thought of people with education and and really with experience um, so I'm looking forward to to digging into that with you but first off why don't we talk a little bit about um, the current situation in Australia there's a global energy crisis Europe is obviously um, in major, major trouble. We have uh, Emmanuel Macron talking about the end of abundance in France. I believe the uh, Belgian prime minister warning that there will be maybe a decade of hard winters. 
Um, the threatened sort of deindustrialization of Germany as energy prices absolutely skyrocket. Um, I've heard some stories about Australia. I mean, it's interesting. Um, you guys, I think, are huge uh, natural gas exporters. But fill me in a little bit more on on the state of things in Australia right now. Okay, well, Chris, I'm very much um, interested in the comment you made about what you called fire economies. I got an interesting take on that, which is Australia is fast becoming what I kind of call a relic economy. Just to define fire, that's that's finance, insurance, real estate. Sometimes I the RE I throw in is renewable energy as well, maybe a firer economy. Yeah. Uh, but just just so our listeners understand that that reference. Well, that, that so, so Australia is a relic economy. Called, yeah, a relic I like because I think that we're fast becoming an economy based upon real estate, legalese, insurance, and the C word, coffee. <laughs> I am I am sick and tired of watching our nation becoming so um, concentrated and focused on these non-productive in terms of tangible assets and infrastructure. And, and, and so Relic is a pretty good name for where our economy is going. Um, we're, for example, outsourcing, as, much of, as many of our advanced nations are, uh, much of our means of production. And this is, this is destroying the creativity of our nation. And particularly younger, useful people are not being exposed to the benefits that we baby boomers were, or the challenges of construction of a nation, of putting the structure and the architecture together of a nation. Unfortunately, they're being exposed to the outsourcing. You know, um, you don't subcontract changing a light bulb, but that's the way we're getting. You've got to be able to be resilient. And so the idea around having an energy industry that grows from within the resources of the nation as opposed to going down to the wharf and opening up a cardboard box that comes in from China or India. That's where Australia's heading. And I was mightily impressed with what you're doing in Canada in harnessing your own internal resources, your own vertical integration of your energy systems. And Australia's got a lot to learn from Canada. Further in Australia, like Canada, we are a big resources-rich nation. And we've got to keep our, <clears throat> our, term, our, our exchange rate at a certain point so that we derive enough income from that. But that means that our wages are high. When you've got high wages, it's difficult to always um, export manufactured goods. You managed to do it in Canberra, in Canada with your auto industry. Ours has collapsed. And we're seeing now with increasing energy prices, and I'm going to touch on this, our energy prices are going through the roof right now. And you can't add high energy and high wages and expect that your manufacturing or the creative side of your nation can ever prosper. So we've got to grab a hold of that. Um, the notion, which we're seeing abroad in Australia at present, about renewables is that we're going to be some kind of energy superpower because we're used to being able to export coal, put it in a ship, dig it up, low cost. We're probably one of the world's most efficient exporters of fossil fuels and gas. 
But the notion that you're going to build and export hydrogen out of electrolyzers is fanciful. The, uh, the, our North Asian nations, they're going to go and turn the nuclear power plants back on. They're not going to have us exporting hydrogen in tankers all around the world. Certainly not coming out of electrolyzers. And we are tone deaf, for example, to what the Chinese have just done when they've turned on the HTRPM. For the benefit of the listeners, that's a pebble bed high temperature reactor. Now, you don't need those if you want to produce electricity, but you can sure as easy do direct hydrogen splitting and shove that stuff straight into a blast furnace for the reduction of steel. So we're tone deaf to these developments, but the Koreans know how to do it, Chinese know how to do it, the Japanese know how to do it. We don't sure the rest of the world's going to catch on to this. So we need effective decarbonisation because that's, that underpins all of this energy change. But at the same time, we've got to put a backbone into the Australian people by harnessing our own internal resources, as you do in Canada, with your Kandu reactors and now the new BWX300 at Darlington. We've got to take a leaf out of your book. And you've got some terrific ideas, which I've heard you express, uh, Chris, about what Canada was able to do in the World War II period. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, we did have uh, Seth Klein on recently. Uh, I guess not recently, probably about a year ago. Uh, but that is a fascinating story. Um, you know, his thesis is very much around, um, you know, this this question of a World War II era mobilization around climate change. And it's so interesting talking to you and hearing your reflections as someone of your generation, um, that kind of post-war uh, period of, of construction of our social services, of our industry, et cetera. Um, but, you know, during World War II, just for listeners uh, who didn't listen to that episode, um, Canada had the third largest air force um, in terms of total number of planes. We produced more armored vehicles than the Axis uh, allies combined. Um, it was a real period of, of industrialization. I mean, I think we were prior to that much more just shipping out natural resources to the mother country in terms of agricultural products and, and timber and things like that. Uh, fur, for God's sakes, uh, but it was a, it was a real period of of, uh, of industrialization, and and one that you know Seth Klein, who's a kind of renewables centric climate hawk, um, harkens back to um, all kinds of criticisms of his sort of theory of how that reindustrialization would be powered, um, but it an interesting read nonetheless. Um, so you know, there's a couple of things that are that are from our conversation so far that are striking me. We're talking about the ways in which a lot of Western economies are are heading towards relic economies, coasting off of the infrastructure that folks like you know in your generation helped build. Um, but also, you know, the threat of further hollowing out of that productive economy um, through high energy prices. Something I'm referring to as deindustrialization 2.0. Of course, 1.0 referring to this general process of um, perhaps a kind of neoliberal paradigm of globalization and of you know chasing cheaper labor, lower environmental standards, um, you know, in order to produce our goods in terms of the productive economy element. Um, so again, t- tell me about um, what's what's going on in terms of your read of of what's happening in Australia. Again, I was mentioning that you know your major fossil fuel superpower, huge exporter of natural gas. So, you know, the states, uh, United States, uh, you know, have managed to keep costs under control because of um, having an abundant natural gas supply. Uh, but I've heard that, you know, Australian, Australia is also facing a, a kind of gas crisis. Um, prices are going through the roof. And, and what are your thoughts about how that's 
impacting Australia's ability to, to kind of do a reconstruction and, and sort of, you know, follow the program, I think, that you're suggesting? Okay, good question. And I've looked at some numbers on this anticipation of the interview. I'm in New South Wales, our largest state, kind of like Ontario's to Canada. Okay. Our electricity prices have gone, for example, from January 21, we were paying about 24 cents a kilowatt hour. That's to the consumer out of the plug in the wall. Okay. If you're purchasing from one of these wholesale companies, which are just adding a margin on, um, they're not hedging it, they're just using the pearl price, and then they're putting on transmission and retail costs and all of those other add-ons. You're currently paying 68 cents. That's a three-fold increase. And that base that baseline's pretty high. That baseline's pretty high. I mean, it's it's double what we pay in Ontario. Okay. We're paying 24. The equivalence, I think, when I did the currency conversion, I think you're paying about 18 Australian cents, which is about 15, I think, Canadian cents. Okay? So... Even our baseline is too high at 24. And it certainly doesn't reflect um, the low coal prices in Australia. So that 24 to 68, what's caused that? Well, I'll tell you now, Chris, it's not the cost of coal going up. And it's not the cost of gas going up. That's where we've got to get. And for the listener's benefit, we've got to disconnect the notion that cost and price are essentially linked. Cost is one thing, but price is to do with your liberalised energy market. And when we've got price coming in, and what's happened is we've got this massive growth in renewables. For the last 12 months in Australia, we were running on about um, 25 to 30% renewables in our energy mix. About 7 or 8% of that is hydro, so sure, hydro is great because you can turn it up or down. But you've got the best part of 25% of rooftop, utility grade, and wind power coming in. And so this is 30% of electricity or, or energy? Electricity. Not electricity, energy, gotcha. Not primary okay. energy, just electricity. Okay. Now... It's not fuel prices that are driving that primarily. Sure, they've gone up a bit, but I did a calc just before I went over about two or three months ago that indicated about 17% might be the effect of fuel prices. The major thing has been that when the coal generators are told that you're not being invited to the wedding anymore, don't be surprised if they don't invest. Okay, So the reliability of these coal plants, some of which are 40 and 50 years old, is reducing because the investment incentive is not there to keep those on stream for the next decade. They're being told, don't come to the wedding anymore. Well, if you don't want us at the wedding, well, we won't show up. We'll go and get a job elsewhere. We'll go and sell coffee, okay? <laughs> this is where the guys go. And, and so what happens is when you get a high demand period, um, like we had in this winter, and when this inexorable trend to reducing environment, uh, um, availability of the coal plants comes in, you will get a massive price spike. And that's exactly what we got. Massive price spikes because of the unreliability due to underinvestment in our existing fossil fuel resources. There is no plan, no integrated plan for a smooth energy evolution or change in Australia. You're trying to do it within the constraints of a liberalised model. 
You're not trying to plan this centrally. There is no plan. Our energy ministers at our state levels and our federal energy minister can't agree on any integrated proper plan. And if we're to do this sort of thing and to hold the economy together, as much as I hate to say it, we need to be getting those coal plants back and reliable so that people can get themselves organised to be able to have a transition that's not going to destroy the economy at the same time. What we're doing is nuts. Now, obviously, as a strong nuclear advocate, I would like to see a smooth transition to small modular reactors throughout Australia. And we'll come to that later. And I certainly do not discount the idea of building large plants in selected areas of Australia. So I believe a hybrid system of large and small is realistic, and also small reactors are also realistic. So that gives you a bit of a sweep over where our energy prices are going. But I'll mention another thing, which is, is, is an evolving catastrophe going right now in Australia with this energy transition. And it's about a project called Snowy Hydro 2. Okay? And this is a project, the engineer in me says, this is a good idea. This is a big pumped hydro project. 2,000 megawatts of power and about 345,000 megawatt hours of energy. In other words, that's about a week's worth of power stored of, of energy um, stored in this system. One week's worth of uh, power to a city, to a, a territory. What, what are we talking about here? For 2,000 megawatts, that can run for a week out of this reservoir, which is a lot. But, but not run the country. I'm just trying to get a sense. No, you couldn't run the country because Australia currently is running on, shall we say, a grid, a grid capacity on our national electricity market of We've got about 60,000 megawatts installed. And at any one time, we're probably running about a max of about uh, 30 gigawatts. And so this pump storage system would have a power capacity of about two compared to a normal energised level of up around 30. Okay? It's a backup for the efficient supply of renewables. That's what it was thought to be. Now, when we... When this idea was first floated, now Snowy Hydro, not Snowy Hydro 2, Snowy Hydro was built back in the 50s and 60s in Australia. Beautiful project and still today produces about 7 or 8% of our electricity on the national electricity market. So it's a great bit of gear. Contained within that system of dams, built down in the south of New South Wales, bordering onto Victoria, were two large reservoirs. And the potential was that you could always link these two large reservoirs with a pump storage system and get even more power out of this system. And that's what Snowy Hydro 2.0 is, was the idea that we could link these with a big tunnel, about 600 metres differential head, and link them, put a big turbine in there, use those reservoirs to absorb renewable energy and pump it out to the grid. Sounded great, okay? And our previous Prime Minister, Malcolm Turnbull, floated the thing that it was going to be a $2 billion project. And everyone thought, gee, that sounds good. And, uh, and on you go for two gigawatts. Oh, gee, that's great. 
Okay, so they went out to tender and the tenders came in at 5.1 billion. And by the way, we forgot to tell you that we actually need a grid connection. What's the grid connection going to cost? Oh, 1.3 billion. Oh, well, we'll forgive you that. Except the grid connection then went up to about 3.4 billion. Okay. And then we've just had a cost blowout of another 2.2 billion. And the head main contractor has said, well, he's actually run out of operating cash to keep going. And then we've got another connection for this going down into Victoria, which is good for around about another 3.2 billion. So all in up, this original $2 billion project is now going to run out to the 12, 13, 14 billion region. Okay? This wow. is for something wow. that does not generate electricity. It disperses the electricity generated by renewables, okay? Well, that kind of money, Chris, that would buy probably a couple of gigawatts of nuclear energy sitting in our main, where we could replace coal plants that have, that have left the, the uh, scenario, and we could have had two gigawatts of nuclear power operating at 92% capacity factor because this... this Poor old Snow Hydro 2, its anticipated capacity factor is going to be down around 17%. Now, when you blow on $14 billion, or $12 to $14 billion at 17% capacity factor, you've got to be charging people around about two dollars to $300 over and above your buying price on an arbitrage market. So this is from a Prime Minister who said there is no business case for nuclear in Australia, okay? And this is the pup we've been sold, and this is the pup that we keep getting out of the pro-renewable fraternity in Australia. And they keep saying, oh, well, we can have pump storage. If you can't make pump storage work out of existing reservoirs, you aren't never going to make it work. I mean, the pump, the storage reservoirs are the most expensive part of your pump system, and you can't make it work. It's, it's a scandal. And this is where we need to be doing a monumental stock take. Um, I like the idea of pump storage, don't get me wrong, but this is nuts. What we're doing is nuts. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of criticisms, obviously, of 21st century nuclear in particular in the West with Vogel and, and some of the European pressurized reactor designs um, going you know, double over, maybe even triple over uh, at Vogel. Um, I mean, in the West, we seem to suck at building things. I mean, you, you've been a civil engineer. You mentioned you worked in Asia, Africa, um, really across the world. Um, I'm, I'm certainly interested in your thoughts, and maybe we'll get into that a bit later in the interview about, you know, again, these, these ideas about the nuclear secret sauce. And, and you know, with, with, with Michael Schellenberger, again, last week, we we're really talking a lot about the, the human factors side of nuclear, both in terms of nuclear communications, promotions. Um, you know, we need to center the human story. Um, but you know, in terms of actually getting the stuff built, uh, doing a good job of that. I'm just wondering maybe as a, as a teaser to, to the conversation that's coming, if you could just talk briefly about, um, you know, the, st the state of the workforce, or I get, or, or your, your sense of, you know, why, why Snowy Owl went so, so far over budget. Uh, my sense of it is that a lot of our nations thought it was a really good idea to get rid of public servants who knew stuff. Again, I go back to the era about my generation when we had electricity commissions. We had 
strong public services with knowledgeable engineers who knew how to build things and knew how to plan. And they took time and they planned them. And they worked. And what we've transitioned to is people parroting that they've got rid of public overhead. We've got rid of all the public servants. We don't need them. What they've done is they've reduced themselves to a political group who do not know how to ask the questions and are prone to being pushed and pulled by the political sways of different pressure groups. You could call nuclear pressure group. You could call renewables a pressure group. They're a very effective pressure group. What is strongly needed, and this is when I again look at the way you've rolled out nuclear in Ontario. I know sometimes it despairs you a bit, but I'll tell you from what I saw from as an outsider, you guys have still got your centralised planning concepts at the heart of your rollout. We don't have that in this nature. We have, we tend to have the white shoe brigade, as I call them, of developers of wind and solar using pressure and lobby groups within our halls of power in Canberra. And there is no, and, and that then transcends into political pressure in the ballot box, but there is no strong centralised commissions properly analysing the options. If they're analysing anything, they're analysing, for example, renewables, but they're not going to analyse nuclear. And as we know in Australia, nuclear, we've got laws even against it, which we can touch on in a minute. So we're not looking at a, a proper objective situation in this nation at all. I think this is such an important point. I mean, the hollowing out of, of the public service, the kind of death of expertise. Um, I'm not sure the, the situation in Australia, but... Um, you know, I think China's famous for having, you know, and the degree to which its um, parliament uh, has any real power is, I think, up up to debate uh, in terms of how how centralized and dictatorial their system is. I'm I'm no expert on China, but um, their leadership um, and much of their political representatives are engineers. Um, in the West, um, you know, in the U.S., uh, it's mostly mostly lawyers, millionaires. I mean, there's some titans of industry, I guess. In 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 uh, in a state of uh, policy making or representation, but they're vanishingly few. And w without that educated public service, it really seems like uh, governments in the West are, are flying blind and very prone right. to, uh, you know, just frankly, energy illiterate um, planning. And I mean, we saw that in Canada with the German Chancellor's visit here, um, you know, ostensibly. Um, you know, around trying to get gas, uh, liquid, liquefied natural gas to replace the Russian supply out of Canada. And what ended up being signed was a kind of airy-fairy uh, MOU around uh, producing electrolyzed uh, hydro uh, sorry, uh, uh, hydrogen from electrolyzers hooked up to a wind farm uh, to, to transport as ammonia across the Atlantic to Germany. I mean, the you would think that if there were any sort of uh, public servants with with energy and energy and engineering expertise, they would have been able to to immediately shoot this down. But I mean, this is the the outcome of of this huge German delegation and visit. And you've you've also talked about how Australia, I think, is being branded as a kind of Saudi Arabia of of you know solar based hydrogen. Um, you know, I I think you've you've kind of already summarized this, but you know how how these kind of categorical errors are occurring in terms of uh, public planning is 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 fascinating and frankly a little bit depressing. It, it's highly depressing, and I'm sorry to hear about that. 
experience you've had with the Germans coming in there and to some degree corrupting common sense, even with the Toronto sphere, because, you know, I've read the papers on the energy efficiency of using RE to try to create hydrogen out of electrolyzers and then to convert that to ammonia and then ship it. I mean, the energy is worn out of that stuff before it ever hits the port. It's, it's, it's crazy stuff. There are vastly more efficient. There's some very good papers. Oh, there's a long litany of research of the direct chemical reduction, uh, of correct, direct chemical splitting of water into hydrogen and oxygen and the creation of ammonia. There are much more efficient ways of doing it, and they will come because the world is not going to put up with this nonsense for much longer of, of what Australia and that awful tale you just mentioned there of the Germans and the, and the Canadians trying to do. That's, that's crazy stuff. So, yeah, we, we really need to have properly appointed experts who operate objectively, speak truth to power, but not only to power but the people as well. These dialogues need to be able to ha- be had within the body politic within the people who vote. And we are and, and that's what I try to do and you're trying to do is help to educate our populace on these issues in our own ways, as to build out the knowledge. And unfortunately, we're seeing in Australia now the light starting to turn on in terms of um, this nebulous nature of, of renewable economies. And so if one looks around at the polls that we're seeing in Australia, we are seeing a lot of increased interest in nuclear. Now, of course, you can do push polling, and I've seen push polls in Australia getting nuclear as favourable up around 65%. You know, if you, say, if you tell people, for example, it poses the question, we need nuclear to meet our Paris goals, it's a safe, safe clean form of energy in favour, you, you can pull 65%. If you ask an objective question, would you like to get to use nuclear power on the Australian grid, you'll pull about 51 or 52%. Just ask an even-handed question, okay? So we're over the line in terms of the interest of the body politic in Australia for this. And, and that's not dissimilar to what you would find in your own nation or in, in, in France, for example, where not everyone even knows, for example, in France, that nuclear is like carbon. I mean, God, why? But, you know, but there, there you go. So the, the polls are telling us in Australia that people want to hear it. The number of venues we're speaking at, the numbers of um, community groups, I'm, uh, I'm doing talks all the time now, as are my other colleagues who are pushing us. So I, I am seeing the signs, but our current Labor government in Australia, and I used to be a member of the Australian Labor Party, okay, and, and, and as a social democrat, that's where, my, that's where I, I sprang from, but they have got a policy which outlaws nuclear energy in their, in their party platform. And they're pushing back very strongly against it. I don't believe every member of the ALP is against it, but certainly Chris Bowen, our energy minister, is against it. And he's very aggressively against it. Um, But on the other hand, he's had a bit of a shock recently where the head of Snowy Hydro basically resigned and said, you know, 
the relationship's broken down with this guy. Snow Hydro too is majority owned by the Australian government, for example. And so they, they couldn't reach a consensus. Chris Bowen wanted to know, for example, why new gas turbines can't be filled tomorrow with hydrogen, okay? Renewable hydrogen around a gas turbine. And the Paul Broad, the gentleman who resigned, had the temerity to say, well, it's kind of decades away. Well, that, that, and then they worked out, okay, there wasn't going to be a workable relationship, so he decided to um, leave the relationship. Now, these are the sorts of things we've got playing out with an aggressive kind of anti-nuclear policy. But I think um, we're going to see these huge electricity prices go through the market and if we, that, combined with the potential for a blackout, we'll see a very fast shift in Australia. I mean, you're painting a pretty dire picture with uh, the coal plants, which, you know, this new precarious Australian grid um, that's so dominated by renewables um, really relies on. And, you know, we've had John Constable on and, and just talking about how, um, you know, how vulnerable these renewables-based systems are and how much, how critical that dependence is on the reliable energy that can sort of save the day when they, when they underperform. Um, and clearly, you know, these coal plants in Australia, 50 years old, as you're saying, they're, they're breaking down and, and they're, they're at risk of, of, you know, closing and, and then there's nothing left to prop up this whole house of cards. It's often said that the best time to build nuclear was 10 years ago, 20 years ago. Um, we live in the present moment. That's not possible. But I'm wondering, you know, something I've, that we've, we've experienced here in Ontario is that nuclear and renewables don't play particularly well together. Um, you know, we did a, a big uh, renewables build out. Um, you know, we attempted to become sort of the Germany of North America, follow the energy venda. Amory Lovins was up here consulting with, uh, with our uh, big hydroelectric utility. Um, and and we, we pursued that path. We gave, for instance, we gave wind first access to the grid. Um, and that meant that we would shut our nuclear plants down when, when the gusts were blowing. They'd be off for three days. The wind would go away in a few hours or a day. And we'd have to burn a hell of a lot of gas to balance out the system. Um, you know, in, Ger in Germany, they talk about this a lot, about how, you know, nuclear is greedy. It takes up the grid. It, it doesn't allow renewables to come on the grid. You have to curtail renewables more. I mean, there's some real... Um, you know, patronage relationships at play here, politically, economically, and I'm wondering to what degree that's uh, that's a barrier, or how that how you see that sort of struggle um, panning out. I'll go back to our objective analysis on this because what you actually just talked about was this patronage relationship, and and let's get that let's get this back to objective uh, analysis. A colleague of mine whom I visited Canada with, Dr. Robert Barr, he's got an Order of Australia for services to electrical engineering in the grid. Order of Australia is about as high as you get an honour. Dr. Barr is a very gifted mathematician and he's put together an energy model, which he and I use to look at how we mix different kinds of energy generators to meet our demand. And we use data on its costs uh, produced by Group Hickel in Australia called CSIRO. And we put these costs into the model and we look at this, this mix. Now, the beauty of the model is that we can calculate the carbon emissions, but we can also calculate the costs of whatever spectrum of generators you'd like to put into it. And so we can do 100% renewables, and we've done that with the model. We can do um, a, an optimum nuclear mix. 
and we can do anything in between. And what the model tells us is that if you try to put a small amount or even 20, 30, 40% of nuclear into a renewable mix where the renewables have got priority, which you suffered in Ontario, you are going to get very low capacity factors out of your nuclear power plants, which is going to drive up the cost. Your options, you've only got a couple of options here. You've either got to have a permanent power price entree for your nuclear. Okay, so in other words, you let the nuclear run. Heavens to bed, it's a high capital item. You've spent a lot of money on it. You may as well wring its neck on the grid to get get the, the, the capacity factors up around the 92 93%, which is what you're seeing in North America. And then what you say to the renewables, okay, we build them out only so far, and if we can't receive the energy, you've got to put it into storage or leave the, leave the scene. The only other option is going down and giving the renewables the penetration they want and then watch your cost of nuclear blow out. The renewables fraternity saw this problem a decade ago or longer, 20 years ago, and they came up with this phrase, the myth of baseload. Did it play out in Canada? Sure did in Australia. All the Greens have got this narrative, the myth, the myth of baseload. And that the lexicon was developed by some pretty clever dudes. I suspect they were probably in Europe. But they gave them a toolbox full of bullshit. And they have been parading that nonsense around the world that the idea that between your evening demand down to zero is not baseload is crazy stuff. So what our energy model did is we looked at what is this optimum mix for nuclear and renewables in Australia? Okay, I'm not anti-renewables, I'm just after the right mix. And so in the model that we ran, we see that about 76% nuclear, that takes us up to our base load. In the daytime, you let the solar run. We've got great solar penetration, great um, solar resource in Australia. So you use that in the middle of your day. And you use your hydro on the shoulders. And you also use some storage in the shoulder periods. And so you can drive your nuclear up, you can drive your solar up to around about 16 to 17% of your grid, you can drive your hydro to about 8% and your nuclear to about 76%. And that gives us the lowest cost option for an energy system at cost. The other benefit of this system that I'm outlining here is I mentioned before price. Price is not cost. Such a system would be so stable that the mechanisms for arbitrage and gaming the thing would be significantly reduced. Because when you go into a 100% renewable scenario where you've got wind, you've got solar, you've got all the storage, you've got all the backup, and you've got all these bits, all these balls you're trying to keep in the, in the air at any one time, what you've done is you've actually created massive opportunities to game the system and to create huge profits out of arbitrage. And that's why these renewable systems will never be low cost, because the cost of entry for the developer is low and the potential for massive profits out of arbitrage are very high. So, the, 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 you know, our analysis showed basically even on a cost basis 
that a nuclear system in Australia would be close to half the price of a renewable system. And the really one of the really big factors in all of that is that we could put a nuclear system in place on the Australian grid and we don't need to change the grid. If you put a renewable system in, you need at least 10,000 kilometres of new transmission and probably more. That's not Rob Parker making up. That's the Australian electricity market operator have told us we need 10,000 kilometres of extra transmission. But it's likely more because at the same time they're advocating that we should be pulling, get this, 69 gigawatts of domestic level batteries and they're going to power the grid back out of domestic level batteries when you get a wind drought or something like that. So they're going to feed that type of capacity back into a grid and at the domestic level it's only ever energised to about 15 gig. So you're going to feed all of this back through your distribution system and that's the most expensive part of your transmission system is your distribution your domestic distribution. You know, there, there are fairy tales out there. I'm getting wrapped up in numbers, I know, but it, it just shocks me that these ideas are floating. It, it's really a, a question of, you know, the emperor is not wearing any clothes. And it, this brings us back again to the, the, the lack of, um, you know, skilled folks in the public sector to critically evaluate this. I mean, there's also, a, it sounds like a perfect opportunity for a lot of corruption, whether that's formal or informal, you know, in front of the scenes or behind the scenes. Um, you know, these patronage relationships, I think, are so important because as a bit of a um, real politique guy thinking about how, how policies actually change, how governments make decisions, there's, there's obviously certainly a means, motive, and opportunity for a lot of um, uh, patronage and, and influence coming from the profiteers of this renewable economy and, and working that way into politics. And I feel like the only patronage relationship that nuclear has is physics. Um, you know, Doomberg, a great friend of our podcast, um, one of their great, great quotes is in the, in the war between platitudes and physics, uh, physics is undefeated. And this energy crisis is really an example of, of physics being undefeated. And, and the folks that have designed these house of cards systems are in a lot of pain right now. Um, yeah. And I mean, I, I, this is a you know difficult question to answer, but I mean, just imagining how the politics need to change in order for common sense to prevail um, against these moneyed interests, this kind of rentier class, um, which has really sort of seized the levers of power. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's going to be very interesting times ahead. Um, and I, you know, that's, this is the first time I've actually come up with this because, you know, thinking again about, about, you know, what is the patronage relationship, uh, behind nuclear that, that can allow it to, to grow politically. Uh, I've been really stumped, but I think, I think physics, I think physics is the answer. there. <laughs> yeah. You got a medical background. I got an engineering background, Chris, and someone, and unfortunately, People don't listen to numbers, you know. Um, and and when you go to the Australian Labor Party party platform, okay, where somehow we're going to get to zero carbon using renewables. I mean, the embodied energy in a, in a wind in a wind system with a battery is up over a hundred grams of carbon dioxide. Okay, the embodied energy carbon 
emissions sitting in a solar system with batteries. It's up around 70 or 80 grams, okay? So it's only in an ALP party platform where the sum of two positive numbers can equal zero. It's, it's, and, and, and so these notions, these febrile notions dominate proper analysis to our joint disappointment. We see this happening all the time. And I come back, the public servants, tenured public servants who do the job properly are not being asked. And our body politic do not know how to ask the questions anymore because they have so hollowed it out and they are now at the sway of lobbying groups in Canberra. The renewables industry are one of the biggest lobby groups we've got in Canberra and they're continued knocking on the doors and continuing to push their agenda on politicians who frankly are naive. And our current energy minister really has no technical or educational qualifications to be fulfilling the role. I mean, compare that with what you might find in China. You know, you'd have somebody who's got an engineering, electrical engineering degree. Sure, we've got some parliamentarians with proper training, but having a minister without any, it's, it's all, you know, his training just comes out of a party room. That's, that's the problem we've got. Well, let's, let's pivot to a, a more hopeful future. Um, maybe in which uh, that physics patronage relationship has has paid off, and I mean I don't say that lightly because there's a lot of pain uh, brewing. Um, you know, Robert Bryce just had a, a great bit um, looking at the the skyrocketing price of fertilizer, and you know how this energy crisis um, is quickly going to turn into a food crisis um, and potentially uh, localized famine around the world. It's it's really daunting. So I don't make light of this. Um, this kind of this dose of medicine that that may be required um, or you know m- may lead to smarter choices being made some common sense coming back but yeah let's let's pivot a little bit to um, I guess uh, you know your hopes uh, for for what this energy system um, that you're proposing and that you're modeling would look like um, I'm very interested again tapping into your your civil engineering background um, in these questions of you know, what kind of choices? You mentioned um, that small modular reactors are a good fit for a lot of the Australian grid. There's a place for large reactors. Um, there's obviously a plethora of designs out there. There's the question of, you know, should we pursue advanced nuclear? Should we go with a very conservative design, uh, like like a boiling water reactor, like the X300, like we're doing here in Ontario? Um, I'm interested in, in your thoughts around that, particularly around this question of, of construction, because you know, the reason that I care so deeply about this question of, you know, again, what I refer to affectionately as the nuclear secret sauce is that we don't have the luxury of screwing this up. It's very hard to do nuclear right. Um, if we do it wrong, we could really blow it. Um, and I think that is really um, the the essence of why we need to study this question so clearly. And, and again, why I'm excited to talk to you as a civil engineer with with the experience that you have. Um, so give us your thoughts a little bit on on. Um, on what this nuclear future in Australia could look like and some of the criteria that you might use um, to assess the, the available options, you know, as, as a kind of new kid in the candy store of nuclear um, with, with what's available out there, what kind of partnerships, which countries you'd work with, you know, what kind of designs? Way too big of a question, but we'll get the ball rolling and, and, uh, and kick it along. Yeah, it's a great question because I've gone through the evolution of hopes and, and seen them dashed. You know, I go back to the AP1000, the Westinghouse design which is a lovely, lovely small plant. I had great hopes for that. 
about 1100 megawatts output, good size, maximum size, you know, you'd see in Australia, they'd, they'd cut the guts out of the materials component and that, they'd, I think they pulled about 76 or 60% of the materials and it is a small plant. And the Chinese built four of them in, in quick time and they've got them going and they work well. Um, go to the execution in the United States at VC Summer and Vogue and we've seen the VC Summer plant, which I visited during its course of construction. And I was so disappointed to see those projects fail. They didn't fail because the design was no good. They failed because of the inability of the project management systems and the vertical integration of the supply chains were not properly developed. That, for example, is, is almost part integral part, to part of the success you've got in Ontario with your refurbishment of your can-do fleets. Well, you've got B, BWXT Industries just up the road. You've got your supply chain in close proximity to where you're building this. And you translate that over to South Korea, another nation which I visited with Dr. Barr and, and, and uh, Barry Hill from Australia in uh, SMR Australia. We visited um, the Korean system, and we looked at the massive vertical integration. We went to Doosan Heavy Industries, where we looked at the making, the reactor pressure vessels and the steam generators, and we've formed this impression that all of their gear was close by and they all knew each other and they all knew each other's phone numbers and the whole thing was just like Lego blocks. They could plop, put these things together. And so we saw um, a Shinkori 3, 4, 5 and 6. We saw the construction of those uh, large 1400 megawatt reactors and so <clears throat> you saw there the contrast between a nation who could build on a vertical integrated system with strong project management and timelines with a defined completed design in place before construction started and when you look at the way their construction sites actually look they are orderly they are clean and they are well managed. As a civil engineer, I can tell you, you know when a site is in trouble, when you walk on it by the layout, the orderly mind. I'll bet you know there's a similar metaphor, for example, in an operating theatre, Chris. You know when sure, it's humming yeah. and you know when it's not. And that's the same on a civil engineering project. And unfortunately, when we went to um, the, one of the VC summer site, we didn't see a strong thread of timelines, project parameters being met, and we didn't see the same kind of industry that I've experienced in the Asian economies, also in hydropower in Asia, for example. So I'll come back as a, as a guy who's been on construction. Um, some of the really critical things, particularly for a newcomer nation like Australia, is to ensure that whatever we build as precedent don't start <clears throat> with something that is half-baked or a few drawings, unfortunately, like what happened in Okaluto in Finland with the EPR there. Make sure someone else has built it, as the Koreans did when they built their first. They used back tunnel from the US to build their first. So Australia needs to do that. So you start with something that has been built, and MIT, their, their papers on this said, make sure your design is fully built but also make sure your project management systems are in place. Make sure your subcontractors are all fully engaged, signed up. Make sure they're all trained. 
Make sure they all know what they're going to do. Take time before you start building to get all your ducks in a row. And sometimes I've been criticised on jobs, you know, you're starting too slowly. Yeah, but I finish them fast. That That's right. the way. Is get all your ducks in a row and then when you're ready, come out of the box flying. So that's really the most important um, part. The The next thing is a mechanistic level. As I see different nuclear power, small modular reactors on the market, and I see some of them with very large reactor buildings, and they're going to build them deep in the ground. And I see the BWX. Well, it's, it goes deep in the ground, but it's got a very small subterranean footprint. So you don't want to be going deep in the ground if you can positively avoid it, because when you do, you get hydraulic forces starting to play merry hell with you. So you've, you've got to control your foundations very well. And you've got to drill the daylights out of them so you know every bit of that foundation intimately what you find when you get down there. We had the example in Sydney, for example, when the Opal research reactor was built that the contractor found on excavating that there was actually a, an old fault line and they, they got the wobbly boot there until they resolved that that was a non-issue. So you've got to know where all of the parts of the foundation are by investigative drilling, geotechnical, and all of those issues have got to be fully resolved. And then finally, you've got to have this supply chain fully in place, vertically oriented supply chain. Now, the Koreans didn't have that when they started, but they sure as hell had the benefit of Bechtel organising it back then in the days when a lot of reactors were being built internationally and it wasn't such an issue. As it is, which it is today with the startups. So for Australia, um, I would advocate that we should be looking very strongly at, at a hybrid system to get onto these jobs quickly. We've got some very large old coal plants, the two gigawatt level, are going to be vacating the system with powerful connections to our major load centres. And I think they should be very well investigated for large plants going in there. And then I think at the extremities of our grid, because our grid is one of the longest in the world, um, we should be putting small plants like the BWX300, for example, at the extremities of the grid. And we could have a hybrid system. Um, do, we could be doing both is where I think we should look because we know that uh, particularly the APR1400 out of Korea we know they deliver it on time and to budget. They've just done it at Barraker in the United Arab Emirates, you know. There's a nation. They didn't have a nuclear industry and lo and behold, nine, ten years later, they've got 5.6 gigawatts and a fully and a fully trained workforce and they're, they're up and running. Yeah, that's that's an incredible story. I mean, I think there's a few uh, points I'd like to uh, to address, um, you know, with, with your example of the Koreans um, and, and with many of the sort of new nuclear nations, uh, I'm thinking in Asia, I mean, China for sure. Um, you know, they, I mean, China sampled like just a smorgasbord of, you know, every reactor technology. I'm not suggesting maybe following their model, but I think the Koreans, uh, it's interesting. I, I'm worried, I think that there's a little too much kind of Western hubris um to repeat that model right to say okay our nation um and and as a western nation or you know predominantly settler colonial white nation we're not going to go to the asians or the koreans you know 
um, we're going to maybe go to an allied country. And I think you make the case why working with Canada might be a, a good example and why, you know, and this is sort of my thesis about how um, Canada is uniquely positioned within the West because of those can-do refurbishments. We have, as you're mentioning, that active uh, supply chain um, that's absolutely tooled in. We have the project management. I mean, it is very tied up with CanDo, which is why I'm such a, a, a so bullish on CanDo and why I think we need to be building a lot more CanDo here and, and exporting it as well. Um, but we are also going to be a, a first mover on on SMRs, and I think that we have the best chance of of pulling that off again because of that established supply chain. But you know, it, it is interesting, and I think an open question about you know certainly there's there's geopolitical reasons why you work with certain partners and not with others. Obviously, Rosatom is <laughs> persona non grata or company non grata in many countries, and, and appropriately so, um, despite being good at building reactors. Um, it, it is going to kind of limit choices somewhat. Um, so I guess, you know, I don't want to get like too into, into specifics there, but um, what I see when I look at the, the emerging market in terms of potential companies and designs, um, within most of the West, it's sort of startups with nice CAD drawings and blueprints, um, things that have never been built before, um, you know, in countries that are unable to provide the whole package in the way that Korea did. Um, or the way that Rosatom is able to in terms of some of the financing potentially, not that the UAE needed financing, but in some of the other kind of first countries that are that are adopting nuclear, um, a lot of that is missing from um, these, I call them sort of like the tech startups of, of nuclear, um, the ability to, to start talking about the full fuel cycle and the waste cycle and handling all that, you know, I think, again, why Rosatom is so successful in their exports. Um, so you're very bullish on Australia working with Canada. Um, let's talk a bit about about why you are. Yeah, I mean that's that's why you came to Ontario um, and why we got to have our great visit together. I'm very bullish on it, and I and and it was reinforced actually by an interesting narrative of the salesmanship of the term small modular reactor. Prior to visiting Canada, I had three days down at MIT, where we had a conference there dealing with uh, <clears throat> nuclear in a carbon constrained world, and one of the presentations at the conference, um, looked at polling throughout the United States, okay, of who's in favour of nuclear, who's not. And so they found, just briefly, conservatives are in favour of nuclear, uh, those on the left are not. And you've got a kind of linear relationship from extreme conservative to extreme left-winger on the, on the I don't like left and right, but we're gonna, just going to have to run with those numbers, that concept. Sure. And so... You saw, okay, bullish nukes on the right, uh, antis down on the left. And uh, state after state, group after group, age group after age group, it was a recurring trend If you're for nuclear. If you call them small modular reactors, the line goes nearly horizontal. The left will wear them, mm. Okay. And I said, in other words, if I paint it pink and put a bow on it, will they buy it? That's it. It's, that's the mm. facile nature of marketing. And so we come forward to small modular reactors. And we come out of the issue here of Chris, you and I liking to see the analysis, the physics. Um, we come into what is marketable to a populace. And small modular reactors are marketable to a populace. And so we then go, okay, we're going to do this. 
and we then say in Australia, okay, small modular reactors work for us because we've got a long, delicate grid, and they will certainly fill a lot of the Australian grid, and they will be acceptable to populations nearby because transcend bring that American research to Australia, it won't be so much different here, and it probably isn't that much different in the U in the Canada either. So mm -hmm. we then come forward, okay. So why small modular reactors? Okay, if we go <clears throat> to one particular design, which I'm quite bullish of, and, and I'm bullish because Ontario Power Generation spent a couple of years distilling the outliers on the small modular reactors, and they distilled it down, and they gave us a terrific presentation on this. They distilled it down to the BWX300. It's not the sexiest small modular reactor in the world. There are fast spectrum reactors which will burn all the waste. There are a whole plethora of other things which have all got good points. What an, a BWX300 is, it has got 60 years of a company who's distilled the concept of BWRs down to this one small plant that's got more than 95% of the componentry out there in the field currently working now incorporated into this plant. They're using a very economic air-cooled turbine, the 300-megawatt turbine. They're not using a hydrogen-cooled one. They're using this economic small turbine. And they've got all the distillation of previously approved designs sitting in this one. And then we've got Ontario Power Generation who are a knowledgeable purchaser. Why wouldn't you listen to them? They've got some of the world's biggest nuclear plants. They've got some of the brightest people around. And they've got a supply chain of BWXT who can build the things. Why wouldn't you listen to them? That's why we came to Canada. So we, we listened. We listened to your energy minister, who's, in, who's very interested in the export potential. And we listened to your nuclear safety commission, Canadian Nuclear Safety Commission, who outlined to us the cooperative, I'm not saying endorsing, but they are at least have a process in place to enable the developer to build this in an orderly fashion with an, a, with a, 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 an approvals process that will work. So Canada has got a delivery model. You have got the same laws as Australia, the same federal structure as Australia, you've got the same kind of diverse population, the same cultural background, and uh, the historic Commonwealth links, which I saw very strongly represented throughout Canada. And so it's not a David and Goliath thing here between Australia and Canada. You've got all of these discipline instruments. When I looked at what Ontario Power Generation do in terms of the refurbishment of those can do's and the way the approach that's what Australia needs. So we can borrow that model and Canada can profit from the exporting of components as Australia gets up to speed with it. And we've got even the same language. It works very, very well. And so I'm very bullish on our continued dialogue and building strong um, export links between the two nations around this technology. But I mentioned the hybrid system. Korea is a very strong trading partner of Australia. They're in our time zone. The Koreans are actually a very 
outward going people. Um, and they cross the globe. I worked with them in Africa on a dam construction. You know, these are people who spread their feelers over the whole globe for a small nation and they do it very well. And you'd be a fool not to take heed of their discipline, vertical integration. So one can do both. Um, my gut feel says we should be planning right now for small modular reactors in Australia tomorrow with Canada and building on the links that we've got. And we took with us a federal parliamentarian, Dr David Gillespie, who is passionate about driving these sorts of links. And it was great to see the examples and the learnings that he got out of not only OPG, but CNSC, the Energy Minister, and also, importantly, GE down in Wilmington. Um, so that it was a, fa a fabulous visit. And my mind is so clear on that kind of route for our nation. We could be into it tomorrow. So before we go, you know, we had a really interesting conversation, again, focusing on on the constructability of, of various designs. You mentioned, you know, the uh, AP-1000 using a lot less concrete and steel. You know, the Chinese pulled it off. I think it did take a bit longer than than their average reactors. Um, but there's certain, you know, there's, there's a lot of differences between the designs that are out there. And I think, um, you know, I really try not to be partisan at all on the podcast. I really don't have any, um, company representatives on to, you know, I don't do advertorials on decouple, but I do think that it's important that we develop the analytical tools to sort of sift through what are the qualities of a good design? What's something that is constructible and with your civil engineering experience, um, I'm interested in, in understanding your take on that. Um, we were chatting a little bit about, you know, the X300 and, and new scale, some of the other the other ideas and, and from a sort of civil engineering perspective, because so much of the cost overruns of these projects seem to have a civil engineering origin. Um, I was wondering if you could maybe make some comparisons. Um, again, I, I don't want to be sort of partisan or slinging mud at anybody, but I, I do think there's some interesting principles. And I'd love to hear, again, your perspectives as, as a civil engineer on on some of the I guess, themes of what, what makes a good design. Okay. From that construction perspective, if we go down to some of the comparisons between these different small modular reactors, um, I have a concern if your, reactor pressure, if your reactor building is too large or very, very large and you're going down below ground. Buildings that are over 100 metres long, over 50 metres wide, Trouble me if you're going down 30 and 40, 30 metres or so into the ground to build them. Because I've been down there in dam foundations. Mm -hmm. And I know the problems when you get deep and you have got surcharged ground, water surcharged ground, and you've got jointing and you've got a whole plethora of issues. And then you've got to backfill the darn thing. So there's a lot of complexity if your buildings are too big. And when I look at the cylindrical nature of the containment of the GE product, and I'm sorry if I do sound um, a bit, yeah, I probably am a, a, a bit biased in my regard because I regard that as essentially a simple cylindrical structure and I, I've built things like that. You know, big pumping stations, I've built things like that. I know what's involved, you know, in terms of, of building such a structure. So I can see clearly how that would evolve. I can see how um, the beauty of separating 
the nuclear island from the generator with the what they've got these integral isolation valves so that if you get a loss of cooling accident in an event, you can immediately cut that. I think that's a great innovation. A lot of people, I would recommend listeners perhaps look into these integral isolation valves. They're really quite an innovative way where when the, all the pipes that are coming out of the reactor, if any of those should get a break, well, you don't want to be worrying about them if you've got a little valve that just jams shut passively and um, and overcome that problem. So that's innovative. And the simple nature of the structure above ground, we're only building 300 megawatts. So is our turbine building and an admin building suitably simple? And these, these are the simple executables. But the other important thing is project finance. One of the reasons SMRs or people are keen on them is the notion that you can build them quickly because project finance is at risk and you can't be stuck in the ground for an inordinate period of time scratching yourself, working out how to resolve problems. So initial site investigation, going to the nth degree to ensure you know exactly what you've got underground is vital. Early planning is mm -hmm. vital. And then you want to come out with all your equipment properly allocated in a vertical integration of your supply chain so that it's on the ship, landed on the port, and then you can get stuck straight into it very simply to minimise the risk of, of interest blowing out on your borrowings. And that's where you come back. That these, these plants, these ones I'm thinking of, are going to cost of the order of $2.4 billion Australian, about $2 billion Canadian. That's the first few. And so that's a lot of money you've got at risk, but it's not so much money that many utilities can't absorb that. When you're going to 10, 15, 17, 20 billion, that's a big ask for a lot of utilities, but the gamble at around the $2 billion level, they can absorb that. So that's why I'm quite bullish on the small modular reactors, particularly if you have got a supply chain that's had a lot of experience. And that's why the Koreans went to Bechtel and Westinghouse back in the, right. in the 70s and built their first pressurised water reactors. They went around and said, who can build this for us, who's done it before, who's got the vertical supply chain in place? Yep, it worked first time, now we can indigenise it. And that's what the Koreans did. And then they went on with their own industry, building up on that initial learning base. And that, I couldn't stress more highly, is what we need to be able to do in Australia, is to build on someone else's learning. Well, listen, Robert, I mean, I could talk to you all day long. Um, we've gone longer than the typical episode, and I'm, I'm tempted to, to carry on, but I think we're just going to have to have you come back uh, for a part two at some point. Um, this has been very interesting. A, a smorgasbord, as I said at the beginning, a far-ranging conversation. We've touched on um, you know, political issues. We've touched on values. Um, and we've touched on some very interesting, pragmatic kind of engineering questions. Um, I'd love to go into this uh, in more depth. Um, but for now, my friend, um, it's getting late here. I know it's early in Australia. It's such a challenge scheduling interviews with Australians. I'd love to have more on. Um, but uh, you, you definitely made the cut. It was such a pleasure hosting you here in Ontario. Um, I hope you're back soon. And I hope that uh, our countries um, do work together um, and that Ontario can share some of its uh, nuclear expertise and advantage uh, with Australia. I think um, there's a hopeful vision here. Um, 
and a vision of moving back towards a productive economy that that supports good good people, good jobs, a just transition, et cetera. Move away from from that fire economy. And again, uh, maybe physics will be uh, that patron um, that that stirs that relationship. I just I hope that uh, it's not too painful of a of a journey uh, back towards common sense. Um, Robert, thanks again uh, for making the time and coming on. A real pleasure. Um, you know, I, I met Jose Gonzalez in in Toronto today, the great uh, Swedish Argentinian musician. The podcast puts me in touch with just absolutely wonderful people around the world, and and it was great to uh, again meet you in Toronto, and and a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank, thanks, Chris. It was great to be there, and I'll just mention when I brought some uh, toys and things back for my grandchildren, I brought dream catches that were made by the uh, Canadian uh, people, First Nations people. And I hope those dream catches that I brought back from Canada will catch a dream that I've got for our union between Canada and Australia on nuclear. Thank you. Well, I'm, I'm trying to come up with a good boomerang metaphor because I've got the one <laughs> here in my hand that you, uh, you gave my son. Um, we went out to the park together and we really need to get out somewhere in the country because I, I gave it a throw and this thing is really a murder weapon. Uh, <laughs> I wasn't, wasn't as familiar with the aerodynamics. Um, I'm lacking a, a kind of catchy metaphor like you've just given us. Um, but uh, I'm sleep deprived after a night shift. I'll come up with something. I'm sure I'll wake up in the middle of the night with a good boomerang joke. Um, Robert, got to let you go. Hard to do. Um, and, uh, you know, until we meet again, hopefully in person, but we'll have you back on the podcast soon. Thank you, Chris. Great to speak. If you enjoyed the podcast, please make sure to subscribe, like, and review us on your podcast platform of choice. Until next time, guys.